Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. With the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses, strong steeds. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them. And the dappled are going toward the south country. And the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make an elaborate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is a branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now the elaborate crown shall be for a memorial in the temple of the Lord, for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hin the son of Zephaniah. Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. May God add his blessing to that reading of his own inerrant word. Well, here we are in Zechariah chapter 6. I recall mentioning in the previous chapter that it contained two of the most difficult to understand of the visions given to Zechariah, but I think that the ones in this chapter also rival it for that claim. But like with chapters 5, we cling to the promise given to us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now in this chapter we have three images and they're very different. The vision of the four chariots, the elaborate crown, and the branch. And at first, of course, they do not seem to have all that much in common at all. Of course, in the case of the first one, this is a prophetic vision given to the prophet. In the others, this is the, in, in the second one, this is something that's actually going on at that moment. It is something tangible. There are some visitors coming from, from uh, Babylon who are there. They have their names and they have gold and silver in their hands and there are instructions regarding them. And then there's this word, this typological word given with regard to the Messiah, but and also in a strange way mixed with these words uh, given with regard to Joshua the high priest. And they wouldn't seem to have all that much in common. And I do think that they have this much in common, that the, angel, the agents of God's will on this earth, whether they be angels or men or ultimately Christ himself, 
they can all expect God's power and blessing in doing this great work. And this is a basic message, but it's one that I think that they needed to hear in their day, and I think it's one that we need to hear in our day. That when the church appears to be weak, we are tempted to think that we do not have sufficient resources and we are negligent, we forget, we are not mindful of all the infinite resources that God has at his disposal. And as he sends out his spirits, his angels, as he sends out this one who is a type of the Messiah to build his temple, as he even uses then these otherwise anonymous people, though they have their names given as a memorial here, as resources to build, as resources for his church, we know that God's people can expect that they will be blessed and they will be upheld as they do the work God has given. So in this sermon called The Spirits of Heaven, we have these three points, that God's spirits are keen. Second, that Joshua will be crowned. And third, the branch will build. God's spirits are keen. Joshua will be crowned. And the branch will build. So first, God's spirits are keen. It says in verse 1, I'll just read this again. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from behold from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. For the first chariot were red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled strong steeds. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. And again, we're reminded that we're not alone in wondering what these things are. They're not self-evident. The prophet had to ask for clarification. We need to ask the Lord for clarification, not just for prophetic visions, but in all of his word. And just a reminder for us all that when we come down to read God's word, when we come to hear God's word read and preached, that we always ask that his spirit might give us illumination to understand these things. And the answer to the question, what are these, is that there are spirits. Verse 5, these are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The question is, why then speak of them as chariots? What is the point of that particular image? And I think it's useful for us to recall 2 Kings 2, 11, glorious picture, you remember that of the situation of the end of Elijah's life. And he was given this singular privilege of being taken to heaven. And the means by which he came to heaven was this. Suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And so we have this great picture of God sending this chariot of fire to go do his bidding, in this case, to take his servant up to heaven. And we understand from Luke 16 that this indeed is one of the tasks given to the angels. You remember that Lazarus was taken by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That is one of the things that they do. And we're reminded also in Hebrews chapter 1, what are angels? There there was some mistaken notions in that day. That's why one of the reasons why the epistle to the Hebrews was written to clarify that. I think there's mistaken notions now, but Hebrews 1, 7, quoting another part of Scripture, Psalm 104 says, And of his angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And that's the picture that we have. They are spiritual beings. They are sent out to minister in God's plan of salvation. 
and that they are likened to a spirit, uh, that they are flames of fire in how swift they are, in how uh, pure they are and holy they are in doing these things. And so more than likely he's referring to angels as spirits sent out to do God's will on this earth. Now, some think that there are some other kind of agents of God's providence, whether kings or prophets, so forth. But in any case, what is clearly being pointed out is that God has control over all things. God has his control over these mighty agents, and he sends them out, and they do precisely what he has for them to do. This, you know, the chariot was the fastest vehicle in the ancient world. It's a thing of wonder. Not everyone got to ride in a chariot. It would be sort of like us in a, uh, a fast jet. Not everyone gets, gets a chance to ride in one, and we look at them, and we see them whizzing around, and we say Those are, that's a, a mighty instrument of power there. Not every nation even has Fast jets. Well, likewise, not every nation had chariots back then. It was an instrument of military power and a technology. And as we see this picture then of his angels as these chariots, they are mighty. They are powerful. They do and they accomplish. They have the power to do exactly what God has for them. And ultimately, of course, we don't look at the instruments so much. I think in the point, one of the points I hope to make in this sermon is useful at times to be reminded of just how mighty are the instruments of God's power. But, of course, ultimately we're pointing beyond that to God himself, who is omnipotent, whose power is absolutely unlimited. And I I think, again, that we should not be overly focused on angels, but neither should we be under-focused on them either. Well, we're reminded in our confession, this is confession, the Westminster Confession 5.1, that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his own glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. It is absolutely categorical. Unqualified. There's no need to be mealy-mouthed about God's providence. There's no qualification that you need to make whatsoever. He can do precisely all of his holy will. And we, the illustration, the, the point of us speaking of these angels, I think is sort of like why God for a moment pulled back the curtain in 2 Kings 6.15. Another situation dealing with those two prophets. First, Elijah was taken up to heaven in the chariot of fire. And then what was the situation with Elisha? That this wicked king had sent his army to go take him against his will. And of course, there they are looking around. There's no one to help them. In 2 Kings 6, the servant of the man of God arose early and went out. And there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. Imagine that. At your, you're parked at your house in front of And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with him. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open the eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, that's not something that we see every day. That's not something that most of God's servants see. But every once in a while, it's good to be reminded what is there. And there's never, ever a point in the Christian's life when he can look out and see the things arrayed against him, apparently, 
and not also know that he has, that God has enormous and infinite power at his command. And so it is not for lack of power ever, lack of resources ever, that things happen or do not happen. And I think, by the way, reminder of the great difference between the appearances of things and the reality of them. We are called to walk in this world, and we don't often see these things. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. But again, it is useful for us in Scripture to be reminded of the reality of things, the ones that we have our faith in. Now, this was a doctrine, I think, that that very small and weak church that was in the post-exile Jerusalem needed to be refreshed on. We all need a refresher on doctrine, don't we? And I think that they, in this particular time, particularly needed to hear a refresher on God's unlimited power, unlimited resources to carry out his plan. As we're going to see in in a little later, I don't think it was such a big deal in the days of perhaps Solomon when, when the resources were all around. And they weren't so tempted to wonder whether they would have the resources to do it. In that point, I think, if anything, their temptation was pride and self-sufficiency. But no, in such times of leanness, in such times of weakness of the church, we need to be reminded that God does not lack for resources. God does not lack for power to do the things that he calls us to do. He can enable us to do it. Now, I think also it's worthwhile for us to think about this vision that is not for some future time, but then. Sometimes we see prophetic visions that its fulfillment is a long way off, but this is not the case here. That was actually happening. And it's just like the horsemen of the apocalypse, as we were preaching in in Revelation not so long ago, I suppose. In Revelation chapter 6, in the horsemen of the apocalypse, in particular that white horse. And looked, I behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. That's Christ on his white horse, conquering and and building the church. And that doesn't happen at some later date. At the very end, that is happening right now. That is what he's doing. He is going out to conquer. And I think that it is a reminder, as this picture is, that God's work, God's agents are right now, both spiritual and physical, are out doing the work that he's called in this great work of redemption. Now, what specifically were they doing at that point? Well, here's where it gets a little bit more complicated. But in verse 7, Then the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And incidentally, whatever else we, we know about this, we certainly get a picture of those who are eager to go, eager to go out and do the task for which they're designed. And we always see the angels like that. They never have the slightest reticence. They are always, as we say, chomping at the bit, wanting to go out and do the great work that they're called to do. And how, we, how I wish that we could all be like the angels, that we, at the end of the service tonight, indeed, that we'd be chomping at the bit to do what we're called to do on on Monday morning and eager to carry out God's, God's will for uh, our vocations as we serve him in that way. But what he says is, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth, and he called to me and spoke to me, saying, see, those who go up to the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. Now that on its own would be pretty much, pretty well nigh uh, unintelligible. What is he talking about there? But you put that together with an earlier, chapter, earlier verse in Zechariah. You remember Zechariah 2.6. Uh, this is the word to the exiles. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord. For I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts. He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
And what he is saying is, this is part, this north country is, is code for Babylon. And that he has the power, he can send his agents, however we want to define them, maybe indeed it was an angelic spirit who changed the mind of this pagan, pagan emperor. But he can do that. He can retrieve his people from the clutches of the Babylonian empire. There's nothing that God cannot do. He sent his spirit. Don't, please, let's not imagine it was some accident of history. Let's not do our history like, like Hume's horrible uh, history of Britain, in which everything has its, its human cause rather than its divine. Do our, our, do our history as God would have us to do it, in that these apparently human causes have a divine underlying cause. He sent his spirit to do it. And therefore he, in fact, set his people free from the Babylonian empire. Well, that's these pictures of these, these spirits who are so keen to do their work and so able to do it. And secondly, we have the fact that Joshua will be crowned. Verse 9, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have come from Babylon. And go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, of course, Joshua was a high priest rather than a king. However, the high priest, in fact, did have a crown. It's described, in fact, we have more instructions or more to be said on this crown than the king's crown. Exodus 39.30, Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, Holiness to the Lord. Now, no doubt this golden crown, along with most of the other uh, instruments and items like it, were taken in the captivity 70-plus years ago and not recovered. But these, these men, these returning exiles, twice mentioned by name here, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedediah, and another is, is added in the second list, brought with them this particular gift of silver and gold. Now, we don't know of the, the circumstances of it, and I would really doubt whether they knew that there were God's specific agents to carry out his will. There were probably just some people who God had blessed while they were in, in Babylon, intended to do the church of God some good. They recognized that Things were slow and not moving ahead, and they, they wanted Zion to, be, to, to prosper once again and came and brought what was in their hand to contribute to it. But what you know, that they were specifically God's agents to do this part of his work. You might say, you know, God, he commands his mighty angels as chariots of fire. What does he need with weak men? Need? No, he doesn't need. You're right. He has no need of them whatsoever. But it is his good pleasure to use weak instruments to his glory. In fact, there is an element both in which he is, God is greatly glorified by the use of these mighty angels. But there is another sense in which he is even more glorified in the use of weak human instruments like these men whom God used for this specific purpose. God is pleased to make use of them in his providence. Now, as I said, these were pretty lean times, and there would probably be, seem to be better uses for that money than to make a, a crown, let alone an elaborate crown, a crown, as is mentioned here. It's mentioned more than once. It's supposed to be an elaborate crown. And we as individuals are bound to frugality. It's true. But as we saw in the case of Mary Magdalene, sometimes extravagance towards God is more than justified. 
Now, I used to have, by the way, some, just as a personal aside, I had uh, a kind of antipathy towards the various memorials that you'd find at old churches. It would say sometimes, to the glory of God and to the memory of X. And I sometimes thought that it, it seemed a bit, you know, hypocritical or, or whatnot. But the funny thing is, if there is warrant for it, it's certainly to be found in this verse. It says in verse 14, Now the elaborate crown shall be a memorial in the temple of the Lord for Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Isn't that interesting? So he says specifically that their gift, which was going to be used for this crown, it would be their perpetual memorial in the temple of God. And here we have their names recorded for us for all of time in God's scripture. And along with it, I just mentioned some other act of great generosity and extravagance for God, and, and you know what? She got a memorial too. Matthew twenty six thirteen. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. It's so true. And even today, we have this memorial to this Mary's extravagant gift to the Lord. Well, in all these things that we can learn from it, what is the point that's being made here? At the more immediate level, that God did not lack for resources. He didn't lack for them. It's not merely for the basic stone and mortar of that building project, but even for an elaborate decorative crown for his high priest. He had a, he, the, the high priest in the days of Solomon had that. And you, you'd say, well, it'd be no great thing. It, you, the Lord did not make a big deal about somebody bringing a gift to, to contribute to the crown in that day, or in a day similar to it, in a day which silver was accounted as nothing and tremendous quantities of gold were just stockpiled, of course, but rather in the days of leanness, in the days of want, rather God was greatly glorified in showing that he has resources and he can bring them from afar. You remember how they plundered the Egyptians, didn't they? They were able to have gold. Unfortunately, what did they use it for? They used it for a golden idol, but they used other parts of it to make the original accoutrements of that first temple. They used it, I wouldn't be surprised, I don't know for 100% sure, but I would guess, in fact, that some of the temple from the, the gold from the Egyptians was used to make the high priest initial crown. And God is using the gold from these Babylonians. He's taking it from them through whatever means, this gift through the hands of his servants that they acquired, the gold that they acquired in Babylon, and he's brought it from afar in order that his own instruments, his own means of his worship in his own house would be built up. And at the greater level, we know that Joshua pointed beyond himself to Christ. And sometimes we might wonder, if you, you looked at, at Joshua, the high priest in those days, and I guess I, I don't imagine that the picture of him in filthy rags may have been so terribly off from reality. I don't think that they were clothed in splendor. I don't think they had the resources at that time in the post-exilic period. But even if we thought to ourselves, I don't see the point at which, in which Joshua is going to be crowned. I don't even think we have the money to make a crown. There are some times where we wonder in our situation as a small despised minority in, in places like the UK, whether Christ really is going to be crowned. You know, Christ is our high priest and he will receive his crown. He will be crowned, and you can be sure that God does not lack resources for that. He is going to make that happen. And all the promises that he has made with regard to Christ's kingdom, the increase of his government, you remember that. We're soon to be in the period of time that we sing from the Messiah. The increase of his government, there will be no end to it. 
And we know that this great high priest, he will fully receive his, his crown. Well, that was Joshua. He's going to receive his crown, and Christ will likewise. But thirdly, the branch shall build the temple. Verse 12, Then speak to them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. He shall be a priest on his throne, and a council of peace shall be between the both. Now, again, the initial reference is historically to Joshua the high priest. But soon enough, we leave that well behind. We're not talking about a human high priest in the, in the, the fullness of what has been said there. He's, of course, being described as both priest and king. And moreover, he's going to bear the, the glory for building the temple. I thought that God did not share his glory with another. God did not share his glory with any man. Well, he doesn't. And he's not, at this point, speaking of a man. He is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's going to build the temple. And it's, this, is, this is rightly, by the way, why your Bibles, most of them will probably have the word branch in all capitals. Because this is a divine name. Christ is being called the branch. Now, why? What do we learn from Christ as we, we have this, this word? All of Christ's titles, all of his names, they tell us something. We should, we should catalog these things. We should memorize these things. We should use them in prayer. They are the part of the rationale that I mentioned this morning, the case that we build. Lord, your name is the branch. And what do we say? What, what kind of prayer comes from that? That, Lord, you would build your church. That's what it says, that he will branch out from his place. It's too small for him to have a single nation or even a few nations. That such a great king is going to have people from every tribe and tongue every, under heaven. And it's going to be a number that no one can number. It's going to be a tremendous amount of people. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he will branch out. When we consider Christ, we do not imagine him as some static person. Biding his time from one place to another. Yes, at certain points in time, God is moving more in certain places than at others. And at this particular time, for instance, we think of the great gospel prosperity in Asia and the relative leanness here in the UK, perhaps. But that does not mean that he is not branching out. He most certainly is. There are more Christians now than there were 100 years ago. And there are more Christians there then at that point than there were 100 years before that. And we are thankful that God continues to do this great work. He will build. What is he building? He's building his temple. It's another word for his church. And that's the greater meaning, by the way, of Joshua building the temple. You say, you know, here we have this whole, this whole book that seems to be focused mainly on the building up of the temple and encouraging them to do the work and to get on with the work. And, and all these things are have, in one way or another, are related to encouraging them to do this, this task. It's no small thing. It wasn't a small thing. Again, in the days of Solomon, in the days of unlimited resources, gold piled up to the ceiling, and, and huge armies of slave labor everywhere to do these things, um, it wasn't a small task then. It was... It is far more difficult at this point. But the reason why so much effort is, is devoted to it and why we have this book of Scripture for us today is not only that God was able to do that physically then, but that he is doing this greater work of building up the church. And we must understand, we must believe that we 
uh, that God's people in many places are in a very similar place where we look around and we say there's so much rubbish we don't even know where to begin. We don't have the resources to do anything. We don't have the, the men. We don't have the people to do things. We have no idea how we're even going to make it another year, let alone to do this great work. But God is reminding us. He is reminding us of this branch. There's no, again, there's no language of qualification. There's no, you know, it doesn't say, behold, the name, the man whose name is sometimes called the branch. From his place he shall on, in some places and in some times branch out, and he shall build most of the temple of the, of, of the Lord. No, it's all unqualified. His name, his essence, his nature is the branch, and he will branch out, and he will build the whole temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. You know, that's the thing. It's a glorious thing that Christ is going to build the, the temple of God, the, the church of God. It's the most glorious project that ever has been. You know that human kings very often seek to make some great building project in order that their glory might be seen. They've built this or built the other. And sometimes it's, it's rather misguided, isn't it? I, I think of the Scottish Parliament building and, you know, there isn't much... Glory to be found, but enormous resources were spent on it, and it was intended to be a memorial to those the people of of that um, behind it. But we think about Christ and the church, and the glory that is involved in building the church is beyond imagination. Precisely because of what we said this morning, what does he have to work with? He's not working with gold and silver. He's working with rubbish. He's working with us. And that's the raw material that he begins with. And he makes this magnificent temple. And it is to the everlasting glory of God that he does it. And against all the powers of hell, against all the opposition that could possibly be imagined, in the face of no human resources, in the face of our own weakness and frailty, he does these things. And sometimes you get the sense even that Joshua was no amazing person. We don't have recorded for us all the action and works of Joshua the high priest, you get the sense of, of someone who wasn't very great in themselves, but God made him great in order to do the work that he was called to do. And I think that that's the situation here. Joshua is building his temple, but Christ is building his church. Revelation 21.2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's not possible apart from the work of Christ on the cross. God does not, the holy God does not dwell with sinful men. Christ, in his state of humility, could barely stand to remain with us as long as he... How long shall I have to bear with you? This perverse, this unbelieving generation. But to make us to dwell forever, that is a work of his atoning sacrifice. The, the blood that is able to make us clean shed on the cross for us. He builds his temple, and it is not by silver and gold. It is not by the men's hands, but by his own work on the cross, purchasing redemption for us. Now, I remind us again, as we think that Christ, the redemption purchase, is a once and for all act, and nothing can be done with it. Sometimes Paul speaks, Paul spoke of, of filling up the sufferings which remained. 
And what he's talking about is not redemption accomplished, but redemption applied. Because of the spreading of the news and the building of his church, there is much suffering. There's much work to be done. There's much sacrifice to be made. And God's people have been indeed paying that price throughout the ages. They are nothing in themselves, but God makes use of us in order to do this great work. Well, in all of this, as we, I guess, more fully transition to application, I would say that we ought to, first of all, take great comfort in God's control over all things. It's the same situation as they had back then. There weren't all that many resources in front of them, and they had a tendency to be discouraged. But we should recognize what Elisha's servant saw that day. He, this is the one, God is the one who has at his control these chariots of fire, these, these large, tremendous... What, what does he call himself, by the way, as he speaks? The Lord of hosts. What host are you talking about? He's talking about the host of heaven. He has all these hosts at his command. And we must be reminded that God has control of all things. In Romans 8.28, word that should be seared upon our our consciences, and we know that all things work to good, together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things. And what it says in verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? As too often it appears to us that there are those against us, and they're menacing, and they're threatening, and we wonder what's going to happen. But if God, who is a God of hosts, a Lord of hosts, who has these flames of fire, these ministering spirits at his, at his hands, he has the king of Babylon in his hands, he has these random people with gold in his hands, he has the, the high priest in his hands, and he directs, in fact, the step of every human being on this earth, well, we should not be dismayed. We should take comfort in God having all this control. Secondly, a more, I guess, more direct application for us. You know that for some time we've been praying with regard to a church building, and I don't speak in terms of very specific, of specifics. You may know that there's some possibility of, of a, uh, another sort of building being under consideration by the deacons and elders. But I would say this that we ought not to be afraid to build such physical infrastructure. You know, we rightly put the, the priority on the spiritual. We know, all know of churches that have all the physical things in place, but spiritually they are bereft, spiritually they are dead. We do not seek to be like that at all. But I, I think that there is a time and a place for the physical infrastructure as well. And God, I think, is reminding us of that in that situation in Zechariah, that sometimes God's plans for his people, for his church, it involves giving, it involves sacrifice, it involves building, even physically. And although we put vastly more emphasis on the spiritual building up of that kingdom, we do not despise the reality of the physical accoutrements that go along with it. And third, I'd remind us of the blessing that God has on obedience. We didn't really speak of this. I was saving it for the application section. But the very last verse, what does it say? Even those from afar shall come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. 
And sometimes people, especially in the, the, the climate of today's rather rampant um, antinomian ideas, and I do not mean to say that they're always full-on antinomians who really believe that we don't have to follow God's law at all, but just antinomian-type ideas where the law of God does not seem to play much of a role in the life of the believer. We're not really called to live holy lives. And that all that matters is our, our justification. God has, has justified us apart from the works of the law, and, and that's what we must continually put our focus on. Well, actually, God continually says that he blesses those who are obedient to him. And even if it has absolutely nothing to do with our eternal situation, we know that we cannot earn our salvation. And if we're saved, that our, our sin does not bring us away from salvation. That much is clear. But even in this life, blessing is related to our obedience. And be clear about that. that it, that's the case even with the unbeliever. The unbeliever that lives more in accordance with the law of God, their life is going to be better, relatively speaking, than those who don't. And likewise for the believer, that if we expect, and more so, of course, if we expect God's blessing, because the Lord is going to see to it with regard to his own children that they are going to be disciplined. He will discipline us if we stray from his his law, if we sin against him. So if we seek blessing, if we desire blessing, then it comes with obedience. All this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so I'm reminded of us day by day as we think of the many other reasons that we have to obey God's word. The many other reasons that we have to repent of sin, to turn away from it and and turn to righteousness and holiness. Reminder that we will be more often than not. And we do not speak in inevitable situations in every last way. But in, in the whole scope of our lives, we will be blessed by God. And certainly, we can be certain that we will have rewards in heaven as we diligently obey the voice of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as sometimes you give us your word, which is hard on the face of it to understand, we are thankful, Lord, that you have yet granted us these amazing visions, this record of your dealings with your people, these great promises. And Lord, we are thankful that you have all power, all authority. In fact, all power and authority has been granted to Christ. He indeed intends to build his church and nothing, nothing will prevent that. He has all this power and authority in his hands. And Lord, those who are on his errand, those who are serving in, in obedience to your calling, those who are on your work, your, your mission, we know, Lord, that you will never, uh, that they will never lack for resources to do these things. We know, Lord God, that you are able to work even in times of great adversity, in times of outward leanness, in times of great trial. And Lord, we pray that therefore in these times that we would not lose heart, but rather we would consider the one who has all the spirits of heaven, your, the Lord of hosts, at your command. Those who can, you can command those from afar to bring resources, finance to do your work. And Lord, you can use us. And though we are but children of the dust, yet Lord, you can raise us up in glory. You can crown us with glory as indeed you did your servant, Joshua the high priest. Well, Lord God, how we look forward to the day in which it all, all this work is complete 
and that you give us eternal rest. Lord, for the moment we pray that you would encourage us in the work that is before us and that you would bless it to your own glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.